part of God's family together. Uh, if you were here last night, uh, we had one of our most fantastic events, uh, our chili cook-off, uh, where we crowned victors, some wonderful cooks and chefs. One of them was our own Jim Holloway, who usually is standing up here uh, speaking to you, not here today, but we'll, we'll be back next week to everyone's great gratitude. Uh, he actually won one of the contests for his incredibly hot chili. Now, he calls it dragon's breath. But uh, those, those who tried it said it, it seemed to have more of a flavor of fire and brimstone. <laughs> and I was thinking about that, but you know, there could be a business here. I mean, just think about it. This, this whole thing has a nice flair to it. Jim Hallway's fire and brimstone chili. <laughs> when he gets back, we've got to tell him about that. that. That might be something that he can look into. Uh, the person who tasted it, when they first tasted it, said, you know, it's not that bad. And then they said, wait a minute, it's getting hotter. <laughs> getting hotter. And it got to a point where, they, uh, where I decided it really probably was, wasn't worth the risk. But I hear it was, it was fantastic and very, very good. Uh, one one um, piece of family business that I just I wanted to, to, uh, to conduct with you all. Uh, you know, Miami can be a very transient city. Individuals come and go. Uh, sometimes they, they come and, and they stay a nice long time, but sometimes they do have to go. Uh, and we have a very dear friend amongst us who, this is his last Sunday. Uh, Lester, would you please stand up? Lester is a very good friend of many of us here, and he started coming with, with Charlie. Uh, you're welcome to, to be seated again. Like <laughs> You keep forgetting, you have to, you have to say that. Uh, but he's such a wonderful person. Uh, a very a wonderful family man who has been away from his family for a long time, working in Miami, uh, has had many opportunities to continue to work in areas away from his family for great amounts of money. He, his, his position is in great demand, but nevertheless, he's just decided it's time to go home. And I respect that. We're going to miss you very much. We pray that God will go with you. We know that he will because you'll be going with him. What is the first thing that came to your mind when you saw that picture on the screen? Uh, now, uh, for me, if you said Richard Nixon, then I, you're, you're watching way too much political television. Uh, you might need to take a, a little break, although I can see that. To me, uh, and uh, this might, might be hard to believe or understand right from the start, but to me, whenever I see this, the first thing that comes to my mind is Brian Bergman. <laughs> Now, I realize that that might seem to be either offensive or uh, uh, very hard to understand because that does not look at all like Brian Bergman. And you're right, it does not. Uh, However, when I first met Brian uh, many, many years ago, all I knew about him was that he was a recent graduate, a law graduate from UM, and uh, was just coming from Tennessee down to Miami. And uh, I was really looking forward to meeting him, but in the in the discussions, uh, uh, in the introductions, Brian mentioned that he was from Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> now you see. And it doesn't matter what kind of discussion you might be having. I mean, you could be a couple scientists on the verge of discovering the cure for major disease. And if somebody says Roswell, uh, the first thing that you're going to, there's really only two questions that anyone has. The first one is, have you seen the alien? And number two is, how is he doing? Well, most of us don't believe in aliens, and most of us have come to believe that those who do you know, might, might have uh, something wrong with them. Uh, but what about ghosts? 
I want to share something with you, and it's, this is somewhat of a personal story, but I want to assure any individual in here who has shared this with me, their identity will remain confidential. So do not, you do not need to be afraid at all. But I had the same idea about ghosts as I had about aliens. Um, you know, they don't exist. There's a lot of theological problems with the existence of roaming spirits um, that have, you know, departed their bodies but have not gone on to any other holding place. Um, but we know that there is a debate about that. Well, one day I was talking with a, an individual whose credibility, in my opinion, was 100% plus. I mean, this was not a crazy person. This is a very intelligent, credible person. And when we were talking about this topic, the person told me, I'm telling you, I actually have seen a ghost. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, I, this, is very, this is a very credible, credible person, very credible. So I came up with the, the best question that I could to try to test that statement. And it was, are you sure? <laughs> the person said, Robert, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm telling you I have. They explained the situation. It was right in front of my eyes. I saw, I saw a ghost. I really I honestly did. So I thought, let me ask another question. Are you sure? <laughs> the person said yes. So I thought, look, I can, only, I can only think of one more question to ask. But let me try to rephrase it differently. Are you 100% sure? And the response was yes. And I have to admit that that had a profound impact on me. Because I could no longer say that I don't believe in ghosts. I've never seen one. But an individual who I knew would never lie, was not playing any games, was not pulling my leg, told me what they had seen with their own eyes. And their credibility was impeccable, was perfect. We have a saying that saying is seeing is believing. And we understand that that forms the core of the message of Jesus. Our Christian faith is not a faith that is simply based upon things that are far out there, things that are improvable, uh, like Hinduism or reincarnation where there's no evidence. Christianity has always been a evidence-based religion. And so as we continue our trek through Mark and looking at the life of Jesus, we move to a text that has created great debate and consternation among many Christians. It is the text in which blasphemy of the Holy Spirit arises. If you want to open your Bibles, you'll find this in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not even as much as stand to eat bread. But when his own family heard about this, they went to lay hold of him and they said, he is crazy. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So Jesus called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it will come to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. And unless 
He first binds the strong man. He then can plunder his house. And then we have the statement. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. The question of the unpardonable sin and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has created a tremendous amount of, of Internet traffic. Uh, what is this blasphemy? Why is it that it cannot be forgiven or why is it that it will not be forgiven? A question regarding this was directed to Billy Graham back in 2004. This is the question. I know that I'm going to hell when I die because I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. My aunt says God will forgive me, but I don't believe it. But I promised her I'd write to you to see what you'd say. I don't want to go to hell, but I know I will. Well, this person doesn't describe what they think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But whatever it is, they think that they were guilty of it. Now, Billy Graham's response to him was not to worry. That that sin, whatever it is that they think that they committed, could not have been blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Billy Graham's response is simply stated, denying the Holy Spirit is to deny the witness of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. It is akin to rejecting Christ. So what Billy Graham is saying, and, and this is what is generally said in a, in a lot of answers given on this question, is well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting Jesus, rejecting his ultimate testimony. The only unforgivable sin would be that of rejecting the message of Jesus. And that may be true, and that is much more comfortable of an answer to give. But one of the problems with that answer is that what Jesus says is the individual who blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So everyone at some point has rejected Jesus. Now, they might later on change their mind. They might say, well, you know, in the beginning of their lives, they might say, I doubt Jesus very much. I don't think he's the son of God. Well, that would be rejection of Jesus. But later on, they would change their mind and say, after they've learned more, they might say, I now believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Well, is that person guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What about the scriptures? The scriptures are given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What if somebody says, I do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. I only believe that I believe it was simply written by man. I don't believe in the creation account. I don't believe in the flood. I don't believe in all that stuff. Those are all stories just written by man. In a sense, is that not blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It is saying the product of the Holy Spirit is really not the product of him, but it is the product of somebody else. It is acting or speaking in a sacrilegious way of something that is divine or something that comes from God. Well, this question of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is falls into a category of what's called Jesus's hard sayings. Uh, these are things that Jesus says that that creates a great deal of stress and difficulty in explanation. Uh, they're not easy to interpret. They often have 
multi-levels of answers to them. Uh, this would be a couple of those. So we have, uh, many of you have probably heard of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, which is a, an incredibly uh, deep dive um, under the ocean. Sometimes we have to go very deep, much deeper than the surface, much deeper than we are comfortable when it comes to some of Jesus' statements. We all know about the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, and this end result where the implication is it is impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Actually, by the time Jesus is done talking to his disciples, they say, who can possibly then be saved? The Lord's response is, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why is it that it is so hard for a rich person to be saved? We might come walk away with the idea that Jesus is saying, it is harder for a rich person to be saved than anybody else. But is it really harder for a rich person to be saved than an alcoholic or than an individual who has another addiction or for a young person who's, who's gotten involved in a gang in a foreign country and who can't seem to get out? Is it really harder for a rich person to be saved than for these other individuals? Or was there something that Jesus was trying to get to that was far deeper than just the initial statement? Turning the other, the other cheek is another thing that has, creates a ton of problems with Christians. It sounds very pacifistic. What if my family is being attacked? I can't, I can't defend them. What if I see somebody else being attacked? Can I you know, go to the other person's aid and injure the attacker? Well, this sounds almost too pacifistic to make sense. We walk away saying, I just, I don't get it. But when you discuss it, you realize there is more to the statement than what appears to be the simplicity of being struck on a cheek. This goes to a far greater point. Possibly the best one uh, where this becomes clear is the statement of Jesus about if your eye offends you, cut it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Because it would be better to enter into life blind and maim than to go into hell whole. Now, how many of us believe that Jesus was being very simplistic and literal at that. Uh, you would think if that's the case, you would be reading about tons and tons of individuals moving from baptism right into the emergency room for amputations. So cut them all off. Cut, it off, cut everything off. But we realize that an individual who is blind and who, and who, who is lame or who is maimed, or someone who cannot talk, is not going to be in any better position regarding sin than anybody else. But the point that Jesus is making is don't let anything come in contact uh, between you, your soul, and, and, and heaven. Do not allow anything to interfere. It doesn't matter what you have to do to separate yourself from that obstacle. Make sure that you separate yourself from it. Because in the end, it is true. It would be better to go into heaven blind and maimed than to go to hell whole. But we know that nobody who's going to heaven is going to be there blind and lame or maimed. So we know that, that, that there's more to the story. And so there, there may very well be more to the story than the obvious statement uh, or what appears to be the obvious statement of Jesus regarding blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's important that the text does not say that it cannot be forgiven. It does not say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be. It simply says that it will not be. Now, will not and cannot 
are two different things. Something that will not happen may not happen because God may choose, I will never forgive you regardless of what you ask or what you say or do. Or the will not could be the individual guilty of that sin because that sin requires the denial of what is so obvious that that person will never ask for forgiveness. That is something to consider. The other thing about this that's kind of interesting uh, and really um, very odd is that Jesus says that any other blasphemy or any other any other blasphemy committed against anybody and any other sin will be forgiven except this one. Now, blasphemy was always an unforgivable sin in the Old Testament. There was a handful of them that required the death penalty. And if there was a witness or if there was two to three witnesses that you blasphemed or that you committed murder or adultery, what was the penalty? Death. And there was no repentance. There was no forgiveness. There was no sacrifice for some of these sins. Blasphemy was always unforgivable. Jesus does something here with it that is it would be considered new and novel. Basically, he says, now, blasphemy against the Father, which has always been viewed as unforgivable, is now forgivable. He would say in the Matthew account, even blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven. But his blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is the one that will never be forgiven. And it makes you wonder, is the point that Jesus is making is the Holy Spirit is so much holier or more important or more important than God, the Father or God, the Son. You can say anything you want to about us, but don't mess with him. Because, boy, if you say anything against him, then that's it. That doesn't seem to be the point. That doesn't seem to be plausible or make sense. Some individuals look at verb tenses. Um, in Matthew's account, Jesus says, he who speaks against the Holy Spirit and the tense of that verb that's used there is a present continuous action, someone who continues to speak, almost as if they are in a state of animosity against the Holy Spirit. And as long as they are in that state, then of rebellion, they cannot be forgiven, quite possible. But I always think about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Do you really think that in all of the accounts that Saul had of Tarsus with Christians, as he was persecuting them, as he, as he was finding them, arresting them, and interrogating them, that none of them said, but the miracles, the miracles. And what do you think Saul would have said? I, I, can't, I can't explain them, but they're lies. They're deceitful. They're, they, they couldn't have been. It's hard for me to believe that Saul of Tarsus, in some way or another, would not have crossed this line. And yet, look what it took to convert him. Saul was not converted by a preacher talking to him and saying, look, Saul, this is, this, you need to consider this evidence. It actually took a miracle. It took Jesus Christ himself appearing before him, pretty much slapping him right on his face, saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus. Not everyone is going to get that. And it, it may be true that some individuals' hearts are so hard that they literally would need a miracle to be converted. And then finally, in the end, I think when it comes to unforgivable sin, we recognize 
that all sin and its forgiveness is conditional. If Jesus says every sin that men commit, including blasphemy against God, will be forgiven, that's what he said. I think we understand that he doesn't mean that they're going to be forgiven unconditionally. It's going to be based upon an individual repenting. Is it possible that when he says, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? It is, it is because, uh, by necessity, that would mean that that individual's heart is so hard that they will never seek it. And finally, aren't all unrepented sins unforgivable? You can see this played out in the two thieves on the cross. Both of them knew about Jesus. Both of them initially were against Jesus. But finally, one changes his mind. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. While the other one, who never changed his mind, was destined for the other place. The difference between the two was simply their repentance. So what was happening with these Pharisees in in Mark 3? There is an actual condition that describes what was happening in Mark 3. And it's something that is not uncommon in our time. You're welcome to Google this. Your Google machines will all tell you the same thing. It's something called pathological denial. Now, path- pathology or pathological problems uh, often are thought to simply be unconscious, but as any good psychologist will tell you, uh, that would not be me, of course, but these types of behaviors are both can be both unconscious and conscious. Pathological denial can occur and often does in a very conscientious way. I'll give you a couple of examples in in a moment. But what is pathological denial? It is the denial of actual reality, something that is right in front of your face, and the acceptance and replacement of it with a false reality of your choosing. And we see exactly that happening when it comes to Jesus and these Pharisees. They see him. In the the Matthew account, it becomes more clear. Jesus just cast out a demon right before this this event happened. So this this idea of casting out of demons was in focus in all their minds. Their response is, the only way that Jesus, that this man, this imposter could do this, great, obviously his power is beyond ours, But the only way he could do this is because he's trying to fool you all. He's doing this by the power of the devil himself. Jesus says what you are saying is so illogical and foolish. Because he says, if I was the servant of the master of the demons, why would I be wreaking havoc on his kingdom? Why would I be going everywhere casting out his disciples, his spirits, his powers? Why would I not be supporting him rather than destroying him? And there really would be no good answer for that except one answer. And that answer is because there's no way that you can be from God. You are not the Messiah that we were expecting. We don't see you fulfilling the the prophecy of the Messiah being a great king and a great ruler. You do not fit the bill. You are not the Messiah. And nothing that you say or nothing that you do will ever be able to change our minds. 
pathological denial. Now tell me, is that sin unforgivable? It sure is. Has nothing to do with God and his lack of mercy. Has nothing to do with his inability to forgive or his lack of desire to forgive. But it's when an individual will not even believe their own eyes that they become next to hopeless. You know, I mentioned that, that there are plenty of examples of this in our own world. Uh, one of these that, that always has always bothered me is this, the terrible warped concept of science and how you know, Christianity is viewed as being a very unscientific re- religion and they look at the, at the account of Genesis 1 and say, that is such an unscientific, impossible account. Anyone who accepts that is a fool. Okay, what is the alternative? Let me tell you what happened. This is what happened. All matter in the universe, all the the billions of planets and stars, far beyond what we can even see, all that matter was at one point in time all bundled up into one particle that's smaller than an atom, smaller than you could see in the eye. It exploded. And out of that came everything that you see. It's like, oh, wait a minute. So you're telling me that this building, the trees outside, all the cars that are outside, obviously they were, you know, cars in the time, but all the matter that went into all that, which I can't, I can't get down into even like a tennis ball. You're telling me the billions and billions of planets and stars that are, that are, in, 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 that are in our universe, at one point in time, all was in a particle as small smaller than an atom? That sounds ridiculous to me. How is that possible? How is that scientifically possible? This is supposed to be a scientific position. This is basically the response to that. And once again, you can find this, search this on the internet, it all says the same thing. This is from Stephen Hawking himself, uh, writing the beginning of time in 1988. He says, at this time, the Big Bang, all the matter in the universe would have been on top of itself. The density would have been infinite. It would have been what is called a singularity. Now, in a singularity, all the laws of physics would have broken down. In other words, I understand that you would say it is impossible to get all the all matter in the universe into one small particle. And that you'll never be able to understand that. Well, nobody can understand that. I can't understand that. But it happened. And don't worry about natural law or scientific law because none of the laws that we currently know would have applied at the time. Like, but I thought the problem with Genesis 1 was it was so unscientific and so unbelievable. Uh, this, uh, a, this professor, Robert J. Nemiroff, uh, professor of physics uh, in Michigan Technological University, uh, this is what he says, finally a little, little honesty from, from a, a, a rather devout evolutionist, but he says, first of all, he says, it is not, Reality, it's not really known whether or not the universe started from a singularity. Our measurements can take us back only so far. Ideas about the nature of the cosmos at the start of the Big Bang are mostly unproved conjecture. Now, this is, this is a guy with tenure. This is a guy who's protected. But this, this is an honest evolutionist. And he says, I'll be honest with you. All the ideas that we come up with on how the world started is pretty much unprovable conjecture. Except for what you guys believe, you guys are total fools. Uh, on a question of where did matter in the universe come from, uh, this, this was pretty interesting. This fellow wrote, okay, if I'm right, 
According to the Big Bang Theory, the universe started out as a highly concentrated ball of matter. Well, where did that matter come from? I mean, where did the stuff to create everything in the universe come from? Did it just appear or something else? Please answer, this has bothered me for years. This was written uh, in a, uh, a blog called Ask an Astronomer. I'll give you the quick answer here, but I will, unfortunately, this individual has been waiting for many more years and will continue to wait for many more years to get a good answer. The response given by a lady named Sarah Slater, a, a Harvard University graduate and professor of physics, she said, in the beginning, which that sounds pretty good, that sounds like in the beginning, there was not yet matter. That almost sounds like, like Genesis 1. However, there was a lot of energy in the form of light, which comes in discrete packages called photons. And that's where it all started. And I thought, wait a minute. So what she's saying is in the beginning, there was no matter. He wants to know where the matter came from. She's like, well, I don't know. But there, it wasn't there. All that there was was light. Then I remember thinking, wait a minute. In the Genesis 1 account, what was the start of everything? Day one, light. Now, when did the sun come into existence? Day four. How many times have you heard individuals say, the biblical account makes no sense because you have light before the sun, and yet physicists for years have been saying, oh, well, yeah, light always, well, where, where did that light come from? The biblical account actually says light existed before the sun, and that is, is even what all scientists accept and believe. Because it's possible, but yet people say, the, Bible, the biblical account makes no sense. The problem is, people can train themselves to disbelieve their own eyes. The problem with the Big Bang Theory is, is, is it is an attempt to explain how the universe came into being without God. But when you go outside and you see the order of the universe, you see the grandeur of it. Your eyes tell you, no, there's got to be something more than this. If you were sitting with an individual and you pointed to a coffee table and said, that's a beautiful coffee table, did, did that, was that manufactured or did it grow that way? The person would say, it's, it's obviously manufactured, it couldn't grow that way on its own. A thousand trees would never grow into a coffee table like that no matter how, much, you know, how many years you gave it. How can you tell? Because of its intricacy, because of its design. And yet we see that in the world, but individuals' eyes, they're able to blind themselves and say, no, this is all just a matter of random chance and accidents. When DNA was discovered in 1953, or, or when, when it first came to light at that point in time, uh, Bill Gates later w would write about it. And you know, Bill Gates is, is, has been into a, a lot of medical research. Uh, Bill Gates said DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. Bill Gates is an evolutionist, of course, as, as every smart person supposedly is, but he, he says DNA is more advanced than any software. He's the founder and designer of Microsoft than anybody that, that has ever been created. Could a program that is more complicated than a software program that takes thousands of people to design, could it possibly have happened by accident? Scientists calculate that the odds of life forming by natural processes are estimated to be less than 1 in 10 to the 40th power. What is one, to the, uh, 1 in 10 to the 40th power? 
That's one in 10 with 40,000 zeros after it. How do you like those odds? The lottery is looking a lot better, isn't it? Absolutely. But yet individuals believe that despite their own eyes. We also have problems in theology where individuals can't seem to believe their own eyes. Um, the first picture we see is, this is just random, but this is an individual who would be called the father. Uh, this, whether he's Roman Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian, I, I, I'm not sure. I think some of them might wear different colors. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their philosophies wide and tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi, rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to call men teacher, capital T, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves, I will humble. Those who humble, I will exalt. Jesus looks at the future rulers of the kingdom of God. These are individuals who would sit on the 12 thrones judging Israel. These are the leaders, the holy, the spectacular, the gifted leaders of the Christian faith. And he says, I do not want any of you to ever wear a title of religion. Now, when he says, I don't, you want to call anyone our father, we know he doesn't mean physically because there are instructions in the New Testament about fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. He's using these terms as titles of religion. And Jesus says, teachers in the church, teachers of faith, my followers, are never to be called by titles because it elevates them above others. It is forbidden. And yet today, for some reason that is absolutely beyond me, you cannot find a Christian organization that does not have lavish titles layered upon everybody. Of course, the Catholics have elevated this to, to, to a, a grand science, but even Protestants, reverend, pastor, uh, you know, so all of these different titles that you see that individuals who are the teachers or instructors in faith wear. I once had an individual tell me, look, uh, if I want a lawyer, I'm going to look for somebody who's, who's called an esquire. If I need a, if I, if I'm sick, I'm going to go to somebody who's called doctor. And if I want instruction in religion, I'm going to go to somebody with the title of reverend. How else am I supposed to know? Who knows what they're talking about? And that, that, that person I actually took to this verse and say, and I had them read this. And I said, so what does that tell you? person was dumbfounded. Like, I, I can't believe it. They said, I don't understand how this is possible. How, how could individuals who are trained in religion and theology not know this when this is seemingly one of the basics? I said, well, that's, that's just one of the problems, which is it's right before your eyes. Everybody knows it. Every pastor, every reverend, every theological instructor has read this verse a hundred times right before their eyes. But yet they allow those titles to be hung on them, never saying, do not call me this. That is, this is forbidden by Christ. I even said, uh, might have been going a little too far, but I might have said, 
actually the one way that you know that the person you're talking to does not know what they're talking about is if they wear a religious title. Just because it's right there. It's right before your eyes. Well, Jesus, when he would give parables, would often say, having eyes they cannot see, having ears they cannot hear. And so I end by saying the biggest problem or the biggest threat that we have as individuals is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is not that we might accidentally say something that could be held against us as unforgivable for the rest of our lives. The biggest danger is that what plagued the Pharisees in a smaller way may plague us as well. What is it in our lives that we clearly see but yet do not do? We are well aware of the do's and don'ts. We know what we should do. We know how to practice righteousness. We know the things that we should not do. But yet we still find it so hard. Why? Because we doubt God's control. We doubt God's promise when he says, look, everything that happens to you, I'm in control of and I will make it work out for good. Part of us says, great. The other part of us says, I don't believe that. I need to be in control. God promises us guidance. Just follow me. Seek first the kingdom of God. And we say, well, I, that sounds, sounds good. But I need to be the one who takes care of myself. And God promises us blessings if we give and are generous. And we say, you know, that sounds great. But I just, I can't believe. I just can't believe. I got I to gotta look out for number one. In the end, we know that God is the one who cares for us, but the world keeps telling us, no, nobody cares about you but you. And you better look after yourself. Look after number one. Do we believe what we see in Scripture? Do we believe what we have seen in Jesus? We look at the Pharisees and we say, what fools. These are individuals whose uh, just blind resistance to Christ is ridiculous. And yet our own blind resistance in our own behaviors and in our own lives can be equally as bad and can be equally as deadly and equally as unforgivable. So we can help you this morning in coming to Christ. Uh, if you've never, never been baptized or you wish to be seen, this would be a great opportunity for that to happen. If you'd like further instruction, making that home would also be a great opportunity for us here to let you know about that, as well as any prayer requests that you might have. I believe Paul Swept is, is going to be coming forward in a moment. If you would, please, please rise. Uh, come forward if you wish, as we invite you to enter the